The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Fiona and I are. Let's go that way. Um, very much delighted uh, to be with you this morning and uh, to, to um, be part of the service and preach God's word today. Uh, greetings from Disciples Church Springfield, which is our home church. Uh, they are meeting right now uh, as, as we are here, so uh, greetings from those guys uh, as well this morning. Uh, apologies if I'm a bit rusty, I don't think I've preached for about three months. Um, uh, had, have had a bit of an extended break from preaching, but that ends today. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a go and blow some cobwebs out of the system, um, hopefully. Um, look, let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage from your word. Thank you that it is inspired and it is meant for us to, to learn, to, to grow, to be challenged, to be comforted. Holy Spirit, would you do that uh, in us today? Would you increase our understanding of what living water is? And would you help us to know what it means to truly worship you? And we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was, if I was to ask you to give me a definition of worship, I wonder what you would say. And I throw that out there at the beginning because I think that's at the guts of this passage. This is what Jesus is, is really getting to in the passage that we are looking at today. There was a time, I think, when I would have given you a definition of worship that went something along the lines of a, a particular physical act. Um, where I was, you know, you're, you're bowing down to something or someone, you know, and, and, and I would have identified that and said, that's worship. Look what they're doing. Um, they're doing this bowing down thing. And, and I'd have confined my understanding to worship to just that, that, that physical act. And for sure, in, inevitably, worship does involve a physical act. It involves an, an outworking of something that is observable. But Jesus does in this passage today, what he does so often in his teaching in all of the gospel accounts is that he, he broadens our understanding, he broadens uh, our idea of, of, the, of the issue that he's uh, talking about and then he narrows it right into our hearts and goes after our hearts. He does that all the time. Adultery is the great example of that, isn't it? He, he, he redefines adultery. He says, well, you can commit the act of adultery, but you can also commit adultery in your heart. And it just takes it on to a whole new level, doesn't it? It's like, oh, we're going there. And he does that with worship in the passage that we're looking at today. A guy that Fiona and I know, um, his name is Aaron Ivey. He is the, uh, well, I would call him the worship pastor. I think he's got a more fancy title these days, but let's just call him the worship pastor of a very large church in Austin, Texas. It's called the Austin Stone Community Church there. Aaron was asked by the Gospel Coalition to write an article for their website on the issue of worship. And so Aaron did what all good pastors would do, is he went to the Bible and he wrote all about these biblical uh, ideas. Um, and then he quoted a lot of uh, uh, theologians from the past and then right at the end of the article, he sort of drew it, drew it all in and gave this particular definition here. Let me read it to you because I, I think it's really good. He said, worship is the response of the whole being, heart, soul, mind, strength, to beholding God's glory 
It is enabled by the Holy Spirit. There is no worship apart from spiritual regeneration. It is fixated on gospel truth. We behold God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It is directed by God's self-revealing word. We don't intuitively figure out what pleases God. It involves personal and corporate expressions. We worship in all of life as well as in church gatherings. Human beings are hardwired for worship. Thus, worship of someone or something is inevitable. But the worship that pleases God, worship that proceeds from a heart that sees and loves him, is only possible by the saving work of the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit. Do you see here how Aaron picks up on the link between the physical act and what's going on in your heart? I hope you can see that. Because I think this is borne out in today's passage. I just wanted to get you thinking in this space and we'll see what Jesus has to say about it. So let's jump in. Verse, verse 1 of John chapter 4 says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that, was, um, sorry, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, about noon. Jesus has been ministering in Judea, which is what you guys have been looking at over the last weeks, months, whatever, uh, that, that you've been in this series. And because it's now getting all just a little bit heated there in Judea, there's a, there's a bit of tension going on. The Pharisees have got their radar on and they're, they're looking for opportunities um, to take Jesus to task. And so because it's all getting a little bit heated, Jesus decides to move north, to, to move uh, up into Galilee, which is it's about a three-day walk. If you're walking, it's about three days of walking um, here's a map of the Holy Land with some first century markers on it for you. You can see, um, although not so well, should have used different colours, but there's a really light green area around Jerusalem, which is Judea, the, the region of Judea. If you go slightly north of there, you see the, the word Samaria, there's a slightly darker green section there. Uh, that's Samaria. And then if you go north uh, of that, again, you get to Galilee, the, the darker green section there. And so to get from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, it requires you uh, essentially to go through uh, the region of uh, Samaria. Now you're probably aware of this, but there was a racial thing going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. This dates back to uh, really the division of the kingdom after King Solomon uh, in, in the Old Testament. There, there was uh, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. The kingdom was united under those three guys, but after Solomon, the kingdom divided uh, in about, about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Both the Jews and the Samaritans ended up breaking the Mosaic Covenant. They both like to claim the moral high ground, but really neither of them can do so with any great claim to accuracy there. Um, but they both claimed it. Um, after the kingdom divided, uh, the, 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 the northerners... Um, decided that it wouldn't be good to go back and keep uh, their annual pilgrimage going to the temple in Jerusalem. So they stopped going to Jerusalem to worship and they started to worship there at Mount Gerizim. 
uh, in, in Samaria. A couple of other differences between them. Um, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy, that's it. After Deuteronomy, they didn't, they didn't consider the rest of the Old Testament to be the Bible. They didn't like all the stories about the kings. They didn't like all the wisdom literature. Didn't like the major or minor prophets. So they left that aside. Um, their great hero of the faith was Jacob. Um, Jacob, who became Israel, the father of Israel. So they looked to him as kind of their, their big patriarch um, and, and, and so forth. Um, the Jews, on the other hand, they, they regarded the Samaritans as illegitimate for two reasons. One, they didn't worship in the right place. They didn't worship in Jerusalem, so they, they just got it wrong. They were heretics. And the second reason that they regarded them as illegitimate was because they intermarried. Now, the, the Jews around Judea ended up doing the same thing eventually themselves, but the guys up north did it first. Um, they intermarried with people from other um, nationalities, other races, and so... The Jews in the south regarded them as impure, um, not legitimately Jewish. Basically, they hated each other. So much so that usually a Jewish person who wanted to travel from Jerusalem up to Galilee would not take the direct route up the middle through Samaria, but would prefer to take the longer route uh, down to the Jordan River. So you go from Jerusalem basically to Jericho, the Jordan, you'd, you'd follow the river up and you'd sort of get into Galilee that way. When I was in Israel some years ago, still doing the same thing. We had this guide, we had to go to Nazareth to get some footage um, that we'd missed and we were in Jerusalem and, and the guide took us to Jericho up the, and I said to him, you guys are still doing this? And he said, oh, uh, the roads are better, um, was, was his excuse, <laughs> but, but it is shorter to go up the middle. Um, and John records for us in this passage that that's exactly what Jesus did. Up the middle. Took the short route. And they stopped on this particular day in the Samaritan town of Sychar, which was located near the famous Jacob's well. Pick it up in verse 7. There came a woman from Samaria to draw water. And kids, that doesn't mean she was drawing water. It means she was trying to get water out of the well. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, given all of that history. Racism is a pretty ugly thing. You, you will see examples of it here in Australia. There are other parts of the world where it is more notorious. America, parts of Europe, parts of Africa. And the racist intolerance between Jews and Samaritans is the background to this whole exchange between the Samaritan woman, whose name we're never given. There's a lot of speculation about who this woman might have been, particularly uh, as you see the gospel going forward after Pentecost in the book of Acts, and it goes wild in Samaria. Um, but we're not given her name here. And Jesus, he surprises her because he doesn't give off the normal, regular, hostile vibe that a Jew would give. Doesn't turn up his nose at her. Doesn't give that vibe that I'm just so superior to you that you're, you're nothing to me. Treats her like another regular, normal person. He even, he even crosses that kind of cultural male hierarchy thing of a, of a guy talking to a, a, a woman. 
which if you didn't know the woman or you weren't related to her, it's not normal that you would strike up conversation. But no, Jesus strikes up conversation. And all of this is very surprising to her, so much so that she can't resist commenting on it. She's like, this is weird, this is strange. What's going on here? Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now besides the fact that this sounds like it was translated into English by Yoda of Star Wars, what we see is that Jesus immediately takes the conversation into spiritual territory. Like right from the get-go. Sidebar. Maybe this is instructional. Maybe there's wisdom in this. I don't know about you. Um, I, I know a bunch of people who don't yet know Jesus. Grieves me, breaks my heart. I want them to know the gospel. I want them to, to know Jesus. Um, I, I feel like often our conversations just remain in that superficial zone so often. The relationship just remains in that terminally social kind of category. And, and I wonder sometimes... Is, is that because we're just not as bold as, as we should be? Or we're not as bold from the get-go as we should be? Like Jesus, like oftentimes we don't want to go into that spiritual zone because we feel like it's going to ruin the relationship. But Jesus has no relationship with this woman. Like he's just met her. She doesn't know him from a bar of soap. So maybe there's something instructional in that for us. If, if we first meet someone and we go spiritual straight away, that, that might not be a bad thing. I don't know. Uh, it, it, it seems to ebb and flow, the whole, you know, what, what works with, with evangelism at the moment. There's a guy in Sydney called Sam Chan. He's written a book. I always get the name of this book wrong. Uh, I really should work on that. Um, I think it's How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, I think is the name of the book. It's yellow. Anyway, look, go to Kurong, look it up. Um, it's got some good, uh, good strategies uh, and approaches in that for how to communicate with people who don't know Jesus and, and to do it in a, in a way that doesn't come across, well, too weird. Anyway, I think Jesus gives us some uh, uh, instruction here um, about just, just how to you know, go there from the get-go. It, it might be a good thing to do. And despite the fact that Jesus is tired, despite the fact that he's hungry, despite the fact that he is obviously thirsty because he's asked for a drink, he doesn't use any of those things as excuses not to engage with this woman on a spiritual level. He doesn't go, oh, I'm tired, I'm thirsty. Oh, I just, I just can't do it. Not today, not today, another day, but just not today. No, he jumps in. Despite all of those factors, his heart for this woman sees him taking the conversation in a spiritual direction and he raises this idea of what he calls living water, which she seems to totally misunderstand. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. So either naively or deliberately, she doesn't take the bait. Jesus, he takes the conversation into a spiritual direction. What does she do with it? She straight away brings it back to safe territory. Let's just bring it back into the 
the very physical. Let's get out of the spiritual. Let's come back to the safe territory of talking about a well that is deep and your need for a rope and buckets that you do not have, clearly. Um, let's, let's stop talking about this metaphoric stuff. Let's get back to something very physical and tangible, which is very safe. And for good measure, she gives him a little poke. Do you notice that at the end? And, and, and who, who are you, buddy? Who are you? Um, are, are, you better than, are you better than Jacob? Come on. Remember, he's the... He's the, he's the patriarch, you know, he's, he's the high point for them in, in a faith sense. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So once again, Jesus goes spiritual. What does she do? Straight away, drags it back into the physical. What's Jesus talking about here? He's clearly using water as a metaphor. Humans need water to live. We, we need physical water to live physically. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a spiritual type of water that we need to survive spiritually. And he refers to that water as living water. And he makes the claim that this living water is only available from him, nowhere else. He has the monopoly on living water. Now it's not explicit at this point of the conversation with this woman, but a sound understanding of the rest of the New Testament should have us recognising right straight away that Jesus here is referring to the good news of the gospel. And when Jesus says living water, we, we, we should automatically make the connection there. Oh, he's talking about the good news. He's talking about the gospel at this point. This isn't just some cute Sunday school story about water. This goes far deeper than that. The implication of what Jesus is focusing on here is that there is something way more important than physical water, which is a big call because if you Google it, we last, on average, three days. Three days without a drink of water and you're struggling. And Jesus says there is something even more important than physical H2O. It's the teaching of the Bible that we aren't just physical. We are also spiritual. There is a spiritual dimension to us. We're not just a body, we also have a soul. The body needs water to live, the soul needs Jesus to live. Only Jesus gives the living water, quote unquote, that our souls need to survive eternally. Only through faith, and this is, this is the gospel here, only, only through faith in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus can any of us have real and genuine faith. Can any of us have a relationship with God? Can any of us have eternal life? 
not about what you do, it's not about what family you were born into, it's not how many times you've been to church, how many times you've come forward, how many times you've been baptised. It's all about whether you have faith in the personal work of Jesus. That it's his righteous life that he lived on. He lived the sinless life and he, he gives that record of righteousness to all who believe in him and he takes from us who, who repent and put our faith and trust in Jesus, he takes our record of sin and, and he wears that record and suffers the punishment for that record in his death on the cross. And he was raised to life on the third day. It's our belief in his sinless life, his atoning death, and in his resurrection that makes us right with God. We don't have to perform. We have to believe. We have to put our faith and trust in Jesus to be our Savior. He is the one who saves us. And the very instant, the very second that you know that, the very the very second that you start to understand that, the very second that you believe that, to believe that truth, that only through faith and trust in Jesus can you be reconciled to God, that only through faith and trust in Jesus can you get to heaven, that you can have eternal life. The minute that you believe in that, you should run to Jesus. You run to Jesus because you know at that point he is the only one who has living water. Like that just narrows all the options right down at that point to you that, no, it's only through Jesus that I get reconciled to the Father. It's only through Jesus that I have eternal life. And so when I, when I understand that, that's where I have to run. I go to Jesus, which is why he said to the woman, if only you knew who I was, if only you knew what I was offering you, you would be asking me for water. Not me asking you for this physical water, you would be asking me for the spiritual water that would give you eternal life. I hope you've had that experience. I hope that you're sitting here today. I hope that you've had that experience where you've understood, where you know, where you believe, yes, Jesus is the only option. Jesus is the only way. And I hope that that's meant that you have run to him. You've run to him and you've fallen to your knees and you've repented of your sin. You've repented of a life lived for yourself. And you've said, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. I want you to be my Lord. I'm trusting in your righteous life, your atoning death. I can see that you are the one who was raised on the third day. I want you to save me. I hope that you've had that experience. I hope that there's a story that you can tell of that experience, of realizing that only Jesus has the living water. If you haven't had that experience, man, what are you doing? You run to Jesus. I hope that there's something tingling in your heart right now. I, I hope there's something going on inside of you where, where, where you're just going, man, this sounds good. I don't have to do anything. Jesus has done it all. Jesus paid for my sin. Jesus has even lived a righteous life. I don't, I don't have to do anything except believe in him. If you've never done that, I exhort you, I plead with you, I beg you, go to Jesus. Go to him and receive the salvation that he and only he can offer. Let today be your day. Today be your day where you drink from the living water. You'll never look at life the same again. It's a game changer, I, I promise you. Meanwhile, back at the well, 
the Samaritan woman is still desperately trying to keep the conversation out of the spiritual and back to the physical. She, she wants the living water, but only if it means she doesn't have to come to the well every day with a bucket. A lot of people follow her example. They, they'll, they'll take Jesus if it means that my life gets better. Oh, if I become a Christian, does that mean that I'll be happy? Does that mean that I will have everything I, I want? Does that, does that mean I'll, I'll never get sick? Does that mean that I'll have a prosperous life? Does that mean that things will go well for me? If I become a Christian, I kind of want to do a deal with God. If I become one of your guys, well then, I want some stuff. But Jesus wasn't promising this woman a tap in her kitchen. He was promising her eternal life. Jesus doesn't promise us that our lives will be easy if we become Christians. You might already be able to testify to that. But he does promise us eternal life. He promises us that he'll walk with us through whatever. He makes us many promises that he will be with us to the very end. He offers eternal life. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, "Uh, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. When we now discover the reason why this uh, poor woman has to come to the well in the middle of the day during the heat Uh, of the day rather than in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening she is somewhat of an outcast she has a reputation she is promiscuous she is of low repute she's had many husbands and the man that she is is with right now even he is not uh, officially her husband and Jesus I think very gently lets her know that he knows who she is And he's still talking to her. And the reality is that she needs him way more than she needs the bucket of water that she came out to get that day. But I wonder what must be going through her mind, like at that point. Like she's Jesus just tells her all this stuff about herself and and what what, what's going on in her head at that point? It's like ooh, oh, whoa. You've been looking at my Facebook? What's going on? (laughs) Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she resorts to the oldest trick in the book, which is the, if you're coming under any kind of personal conviction, let's start a theological debate to try to ignore that personal conviction trick. (laughs) Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? Maybe you did before you became a Christian? Some annoying person trying to tell you about Jesus? And, And you just wanted to have a theological debate. You wanted to stay away from all the hard issues. You just wanted a theological debate. Or maybe you even do it as a Christian. If, if there's an area of sin that you're struggling with, that you're wrestling with, that someone's trying to just gently encourage you to put to death, 
you just, you just want to stay in that sort of theological space. You, you just want to keep going there and having a, a theological debate. I see it in you know, the old traditional Bible study. You see that happen a lot. People love to hide behind these traditional um, or, or hide behind theological debates. Instead of coming to grips with an issue of faith in, or, or dealing with an obvious sin, you look for theological red herrings. Hasn't science discredited Christianity? Isn't it all old-fashioned and out of date? Oh, Christianity, it's so bigoted, it's so chauvinistic. The church is full of sexual abusers. Why can't the denominations agree on everything? Do you really believe in predestination? Did Adam have a belly button? All of these sorts of issues is constantly, you know, we just want to raise these issues so that we can ignore the personal. It's the oldest trick in the book. Take it away from the heart and get it back to the mind because the mind is much safer territory. Now, Jesus doesn't avoid the question. What he does, he simply tells her what he told the Old Testament professor Nicodemus uh, in the last chapter, which you guys would be familiar with. But let's have a look. Jesus, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? In order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again of the spirit. We are born physically, and we're born, but we also need to be born spiritually. When we're born physically, uh, most of the time, um, our, our hearts are, are dead. They're spiritually hard. They're not soft. They're not alive. This is a work, says Jesus, of the Holy Spirit to bring that dead heart soul to life. And John builds on this idea here as he relays the interaction with the Samaritan woman to address the red herring issue of worship by saying that only those who have experienced that renewal, only those who have experienced that Holy Spirit doing that work of regeneration in their hearts to bring their, 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 their dead hearts to life, it's only when that happens do you actually get to see Jesus for who he really is. And then run to him for, for salvation. And therefore it's only those who have experienced that renewal who will be able to truly worship God as we should. For the Christian then, worship is not just an outward practice. Not just a box-ticking exercise. Oh, I went to church on Sunday. I did worship. It's not something that has no connection to the posture and the motive of your heart. When we read what Jesus said here, we have a tendency to think that he's referring to the Holy Spirit. We put a capital on the S 
And when, when he says spirit and truth, we think, oh, Holy Spirit and truth. It's got something, to, something mystical to do with the Holy Spirit and, and, and truth. But it's not that. There's no capital S. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about your spirit, my spirit. He's talking about our, our hearts, our souls, the inner you. That when we worship God, we've got to worship him with the inner us. What Aussies would refer to as our blood and guts. Like, like what's inside of us. So it's not just a physical act, but it's got to come from inside. Theologian Dustin Bang, he puts it like this. Let me give you another quote. Um, he says, the Greek is quite clear here. It does not say in the capital S spirit, but in lowercase spirit. Jesus is not instructing believers to worship in the Holy Spirit, but with or in the human spirit. He is telling the Samaritan woman in John 4 not only that he desires worship that flows from a knowledge of the truth of who he is, but also that he is looking for worshippers who will worship from the very depth of their inner being, their spirit. So there's two elements to authentic worship. It's got to come from the heart. We have to mean it deep down. It's not just box ticking, going through the motions, exercise. And secondly, it must be grounded in the truth. The truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We only come to the Father through him and what he has done. Jesus says that God is spirit. And again, that's the lowercase s. God is spirit and we must worship him in, 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 in spirit and truth. From our inside out. From, from our heart. He knows our heart. And so feigning worship or faking worship will not cut it with Jesus. But our dear Samaritan woman, she's going to have one last go. She's going to have one last go at ducking out of where Jesus is taking this conversation. Let's just wrap it up with verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Mic drop. She tries to fob it all off by saying, ah, oh, well, it's all very nice. This has been very sweet. But you think that and I think this. But when the Messiah comes, he'll be able to tell us all exactly what is true and exactly what is right. So we'll just leave it till then and we'll sort it out then when the Messiah comes. And without flinching, Jesus responds to her and he says, I am the Messiah. Now, this is interesting on multiple levels. The first thing that I th that Jesus doesn't normally out himself like this, does he? Like this, this kind of hits us like a bit of a speed bump. Like if you're used to reading the Gospels, oftentimes, and it's usually demons, they, they are outing Jesus. Oh, you're the Messiah, you're the one of God, you're the Holy One of God, you're the Anointed One. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 shh, keep that on the down low. He does that time and time again. So this kind of stands out because he's not doing that here. Why? What's going on with all of that? Well, it's because usually when this is happening, it's in a Jewish crowd that's got a good percentage of Pharisees hanging around looking for an excuse to string him up, essentially. Jesus isn't afraid of dying, but he's going to do it on his terms when the time is right and not before. And so to avoid inflaming what is often usually a very tense situation, he will try and play that down in that context. But here's a different context. There's no Jews anywhere. 
The closest Jews are his disciples and they've gone off to town to get some KFC. So here in front of this Samaritan woman, he has no qualms with saying, I am the Messiah. I love this. It's so refreshing. It's so good. I just love the fact that Jesus comes out and just owns it with her. The second reason I think it's interesting is that Jesus is essentially saying to the Samaritan woman who wants to leave all the issues of worship unresolved until sometime later, he says, no, you need to confront this right now. You need to confront this right now because I am the Messiah. Now you guys will get to look at the response next week. Spoiler alert, this is a game changer. For her, right, right now, this, this is a game Her mind is, is starting to suddenly think in the right ways and you'll get to look at that next week. So let's have a go at wrapping this up by bringing a, a, a few threads together. Actually, I might just bring up the definition that we had at, at the beginning uh, of, of, of worship. When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to uh, the Romans, he spent 11 chapters unpacking the truth of the gospel, unpacking the theology of the gospel. And then he gets to chapter 12, and he begins chapter 12 talking about worship. And he says to Christians, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Over the course of the last 50 years, evangelicals have latched onto this verse as a means of distinguishing ourselves from our Pentecostal friends because of their focus on Sunday service as the exclusive sort of time for worship. Now the biblical position embraces both, both an all of life individual worship and also a when we gather corporate worship. It's not one or the other, it's both. But here's the common trait, here's the common trait, it must be genuine. It must be genuine, from the heart, from a redeemed heart. And it must be based on gospel truth, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. The Samaritan woman at the well, she said, it would be best to wait until the Messiah comes and then he'll tell us the right way to worship. Well, guess what? The Messiah has come and he has told us the right way to worship in spirit and in truth. We were created for worship. God built this into our DNA. We were made to worship God and worship him alone. And we've, we've, not, done, we've not done very well at that across the course of human history. But through faith in Jesus, we are actually able to do this. We're not trying to impress God with our worship. We're not trying to buy brownie points or get into his good books or some sort of Christian version of karma by, by you know, worshipping God. Our righteousness, our holiness, the way God looks at us, he looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. We can't be any more holy or any more righteous in his eyes because we bear the righteousness of Christ. So ultimately, our worship, what, what is our worship? Our worship is a response. It's a response to the grace that we have been shown in the gospel. That if we know how much God has loved us in Christ, if we know the indwelling of his spirit and, and, and how that drives us, if we've experienced his love and his mercy and his grace in those ways, then we will respond to that in how we live our lives. 
One will follow the other like night follows day. When we truly know the grace of God, when we've experienced his mercy and his love, when we have drunk from the living water that only Jesus provides, then our hearts should want to do nothing less than to worship him in spirit and in truth. Sit and finish. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 